0: This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producer's credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtafer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Mel Gertug, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Portland State University, Editor-in-Chief of the International Affairs Quarterly Asian Perspective, blogger at In the Human Interest, and author of the new book, Engaging China, Rebuilding Sino-American Relations, joins us to unpack the Chinese spy balloon incident that has caused quite an uproar on Capitol Hill, and further exacerbated tensions between the U.S. and China. Of course, the U.S. and China have been having a rocky relationship as of late as it is, with concerns over Taiwan, among other issues. However, the spy balloon incident has blown up in the media. We're going to be discussing how... The US responded to the incident, the fallout from this incident, including Secretary of State Anthony Blinken canceling a diplomatic visit to China, and how this whole episode could have been handled differently. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. And with that being said, let's get right to it with Mel Gertov, author of Engaging China Rebuilding. Sino-American relations. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really interested to be speaking with. Mel Gertov, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Portland State University, Editor-in-Chief of Asian Perspectives and blogger at In the Human Interest, also the author of Engaging China. How are you doing today?
1: Doing just fine. It's a Beautiful day here in Oregon.
0: So, Mel, the reason I wanted to have you on the show was to talk about this um, thing that I'm I'm calling Balloon Gate, uh, you know, the Chinese spy balloon and whatnot. But uh, maybe before we get into that, you could give a little bit of background on yourself and uh, your work. You try to offer, I guess, what would be called a, a global citizen perspective on issues related to China, the U.S., and international relations. Uh, So maybe you could talk a little bit about what your perspective on international relations is.
1: Well, a global uh, citizen perspective means that I'm trying to address uh, key issues, whether it's climate change or immigration or arms control, whatever, uh, from an objective perspective uh, not linked to any particular nationality. So obviously I'm an American, but uh, that uh, isn't the, necessarily the perspective that I try to uh, to employ. I'm trying to step away from, from that citizenship issue uh, and the nationalism that, that goes with it uh, and try to look uh, as objectively as I can at how... Any particular issue affects the global majority, uh, which doesn't mean us really so much as it does uh, people with little power and little means who are who constitute the global majority. So I've tried to apply that over many years uh, to my expertise on China. You know, I I speak the language. Uh, I've been there many times. I know many people in China. I lo- I love their culture, uh, and and appreciate their history. And I try to look, and this is probably the most important thing, uh, I try to look at the world through Chinese eyes and not just American eyes. So then with regards to this story that that broke um, earlier
0: this month, uh, you know, a, a Chinese spy balloon was spl- spotted uh, floating uh, across the U.S. earlier this month. There's been a firestorm of concern about it uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, Anthony blinken, the Secretary of State canceled his trip to China uh amidst this news. We have uh, Republicans screaming at the top of their lung uh lungs about this uh you know what is what do you make of the reaction and the initial story?
1: I think uh we overreacted. And the reason I think uh, the United States overreacted is that the context for this incident uh, is a dramatic deterioration in US-China relations. Uh, if, the, if those relations had been more uh, oriented toward engagement, which is what my new book is all about, uh, the incident would be treated as just uh, an unpleasant episode that needed to be dealt with diplomatically and without all the hullabaloo about how uh, the incident shows that that China is a strategic threat to the United States. But to the Biden administration, um, even more so than to the Trump administration, China is a strategic threat, even greater in magnitude than Russia. Mind you, we're essentially at war with Russia, but uh, nevertheless, China is regarded as an all-encompassing threat. And so the balloon episode fits into that uh, narrative. And as a result, uh, the bipartisan consensus in Washington, which is hostile to China, um, especially within the Congress, uh, has taken the incident uh, and made it seem to be uh, a dramatic example of how the Chinese are getting away with murder. Uh, They're uh, brazenly uh, violating American sovereignty, et cetera, et cetera. And my, my view is that, again, if relations had been more positive with China, Blinken uh, could have gone to Beijing uh, and simply addressed the issue as one of many areas of concern uh, between the two countries and hopefully um, generated some kind of a greater sense of Responsibility on the Chinese side—they could have said, uh, uh, "We take responsibility. We're sorry. Uh, we'll try not to let it happen again." This was not something we had wanted to uh, to happen. Which the Blinken visit is very important to us. We want to get back to a more normal situation uh, in relations with the United States, etc. And and then um, we could have moved on. Uh, but of course. Uh, Domestic politics always interferes uh, there and here. And so uh, instead of trying to resolve the issue uh, peacefully behind closed doors, uh, this incident just adds to the hostile situation and the tensions between the two countries.
0: So with regards to the Biden administration and relations with China, you said that the um... The, the Biden administration has an even more, I guess, hawkish stance or hostile stance towards uh, China than even Trump. Um, maybe you could explain that a little bit more in detail, because I know uh, people are going to be saying, well, wait a second. Uh, you know, the the Republicans are raising hell now, saying that Biden hasn't done enough when it comes to this uh, Chinese balloon incident. So maybe, maybe you could explain what you mean more by uh, Biden's hostile stance and then comparing that to the Republican stance.
1: Sure. Uh Let's go back uh, for a moment to the Trump administration. And really, the the central issue for Trump was tariffs and the US-China trade situation. Uh, As Trump once said, I'm tariff man. So as tariff man, uh, he bullied the Chinese and tried to uh, uh, to push them to accept uh, higher levels of American uh, uh, imports. And uh, the result was that China pushed back and so tariffs, uh, mutual tariffs uh, remained uh, quite high. But really, that was the essence of Trump's uh, China policy. The ideologues around Trump, uh, people like uh, like Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo, uh, did push the line that, which is still being pushed uh, by Republicans in Congress, that uh, what we're really dealing with is not so much China uh, as the Chinese Communist Party. Okay, that, uh, that view has been taken up, all of that. The trade war uh, remains uh, with Biden, and so does the ideological element, <clears throat> which is put now in terms of democracy versus autocracy. But there's a lot more to the hostile China policy of the Biden administration than happened uh, under Trump. Uh, first of all, China is now uh, regarded as the premier uh, threat, Uh, whereas under Trump, it was uh, both China and Russia equally. Uh, Second, uh, Biden has brought together a a larger coalition of China-targeted security partnerships. So we not only have the array of traditional uh, security treaty partners, uh, South Korea, Japan, Australia, uh, but uh, we now have... uh, the so-called AUKUS, Australia, uh, United Kingdom, and United States, uh, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, which brings in Japan and uh, and India. Uh, The United States has now gained uh, access to four additional uh, bases in the Philippines, again, because of the presumed uh, uh, China threat. There are there is now an an, uh, increased U.S. forces on Guam and Okinawa. Uh, Japan has been pushed to uh, create a new security uh, 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 paper. I'm sorry, Uh, and uh, that is very much directed at uh, the the perception of an increased China threat. So, and then of course in Congress itself, uh, the bipartisan consensus has meant. an extraordinary array of bills directed at uh, China, probably the most important one, is designed to dramatically increase the uh, US role in Taiwan, uh, which uh, goes beyond our traditional uh, strategic ambiguity uh, concerning Taiwan, that is to say, uh, the notion that we will keep ambiguous what we would do if China attacked, uh, now, uh, if uh, the Congress has its way, and I'm including liberals here as much as conservatives in, in Congress, uh, the U.S. will now have a much bigger role in Taiwan's security under the heading of what is now called strategic clarity. Well, that clarity has been matched by, by provocative Chinese moves. And uh, and Taiwan has become uh, a flashpoint again uh, in a way that it has not been since the uh, the ch- missile crisis with, uh, with, the, uh, with China that occurred under the Clinton administration in 1996.
0: Are there any um, significant differences between uh, liberals and conservatives on the Hill with regards to uh, China or is it uh, really
1: completely bipartisan? Uh, there are very few voices on the Democratic side that are suggesting that uh, perhaps we're going too far in dealing with China uh, and thinking of China as a national security threat. It's really uh, quite disappointing to find that liberals are just as uh, powerful on the China issue as conservatives when it comes to supporting uh, Taiwan with military assistance, uh, when it comes to conducting a chips war, Uh, to deny China access to semiconductor technology Uh, when it comes to educational exchanges with China and the presumed uh, threat of uh, Confucius Institutes that have been established uh, and now, uh, for the most part, disestablished uh, in the United States. So really, it's hard to find liberal voices uh, that are standing up. Uh, They've been, you know, it's the one issue really that has united uh, liberals and conservatives. In regards to the spy balloon
0: itself, what is your general take on the issues surrounding this balloon? You know, and also, I I guess the, the, the thing I've seen from people is that we need to take a hard stance on this and, you know, we cannot let this stand that China would do this, how do you respond to people that sort of take that hardline stance?
1: Well, I think uh, it's clear from the reporting that's taken place uh, since the balloon was first uh, spotted that uh, it was not regarded as a significant intelligence gathering situation. we can call it a spy balloon. It definitely was something more than uh, a weather balloon uh, because evidently, uh, from what has been revealed, the, there is uh, technology in the in the balloon that suggests that it was uh, collecting data. And it's almost like so, a surveillance balloon, yeah. Yeah, a surveillance balloon, okay. Now, of course, first of all, uh, we conduct and the Chinese have made the charge uh, explicit. Uh, we certainly conduct surveillance over China as well, and of course not just with balloons. I mean, we do it with uh, primarily with satellite technology, just as the Chinese uh, do. So we're all doing we're all in the same game. Number one, but number two, uh, uh, brought, President Biden himself, as well as other officials, have acknowledged that the spy that the so the Chinese balloon. Um, from the very moment it came in uh, over US territory, was not regarded as a technological threat, uh, that it was really not engaged in something that was uh, particularly onerous. So, so that's, uh, that's the first uh, order of business. Secondly, uh, and this was belated, but nevertheless important, uh, the administration is now coming around, I think correctly to the view that this is not a matter of Xi Jinping uh, at, and in other words, person at the highest level of Chinese authority, uh, deciding just before Blinken's expected visit uh, to direct that balloons should fly over the United States. Uh, much more likely uh, is it that the a division of the People's Liberation Army, the official name for China's uh, armed forces, is... Um, Sent the balloon up as a matter of course, uh, you know. As I've written, um, students of bureaucracy will recognize that um, agencies within governments uh, often will act on their own, doing what they normally do without reference to what else is going on in the government. So the foreign ministry is dealing with uh, with uh, the U.S. State Department and Blinken's visit on one hand. But on the other, some subdiv- subdivision of the of the Chinese military is doing what it knows best, what how to do, and that is sending up balloons. So uh, we have a situation that again um, could have been dealt with uh, really as a bureaucratic issue and um, and and resolved without uh, an increase in tensions. But um, but again, uh, you know, our politics was such that I think the president and, and his top officials had no other course but to say that, yes, we have to, we're going to do something about it just to silence the critics uh, in, and in, uh, in the Republican Party, especially uh, who are demanding action and, tr- and, and insisting that to do anything less than shoot the uh, balloon down would be a, a sign of weakness. What are the implications, like for for people that haven't
0: thought out the implications of how this incident was treated? Uh, what are the implications of are uh, not having treated this as you put it in one of your articles, as a diplomatic episode? It was treated as much more than that. What what are the pos- What's the possible fallout from how this all played out for listeners that may be unfamiliar with the uh, potential blowback from this?
1: Yeah. Well, one thing is that. Uh, it- from looking at the Chinese press and uh, what is coming out now, uh, it 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 simply feeds the hawkish element in China that uh, regards engagement with the United States as a fruitless exercise. I was so, going to say
0: it's it's like a scenario of uh, our paranoia is begetting paranoia in the the world of China, and that's going to beget more paranoia on the U.S. side, and it's just going to keep escalating.
1: Right. Right. So we're at a stage now where um, where both sides are engaged in blame and both sides are exciting their populations with the idea of how threatening the other is. And I think that's the major uh, blowback from this, uh, from this situation. It makes it even harder than it's already been uh, for the two sides to find common ground. And the point really is, <laughs> or should be, for the sake of of uh, peace between the two countries, but also for the sake of international security, uh, that the United States and China find common ground. And there's plenty of fi- of common ground to find. You know, uh, the Chinese uh, have have indicated that they, you know, are very much interested in moving ahead on on uh, pandemic research, which once was a very fruitful area of cooperation, on climate change. And perhaps even on nuclear weapons, where the Chinese are apparently ginning up for an, an expansion of their nuclear missile force, and that's just and those are just three items um, which are uh, you know very important. Obviously, we have trade issues that remain uh, unresolved, um, and and so forth. So, um, any anything that increases tension, uh, such as the balloon in- incident. Really sets back the agenda for cooperation quite a bit, and uh, and now uh, I mean it is true that uh, Blinken and Wang Yi, who is the main foreign policy person in China, uh, who were supposed to meet uh, re- the other day, uh, they are apparently talking about uh, having a meeting, and that will be <laughs> that will be quite interesting uh, in the wake of this um, of this incident. In regards to how this could have been handled differently, what
0: what could the U.S. side have done differently? Also, uh, is there anything that China could have done differently in the way that they've responded to all of this?
1: Well, both, uh, as I was saying uh, earlier, uh, politics, domestic politics in both countries really shapes uh, what the uh, either government can do. Uh, Biden felt compelled to show toughness. And the Chinese felt compelled to do the same, uh, and need, neither side is inclined uh, on, on this or any other issue to accept any responsibility when things go wrong. So, uh, it, if, it, it would have taken an act, I suppose, of political courage for Biden to have said to have uh, said. Uh, that the, the incident was a very minor one, that the Chinese uh, accepted responsibility, which they did, um, even without a formal apology, and then to have said, uh, sent uh, Blinken on his way to Beijing. And the Chinese, who had initially said uh, to Blinken in a message from this very same uh, Wang Yi, uh, that, you know, let's treat this issue calmly and professionally, those were his words. They could have accepted. They could have welcomed uh, Blinken, and uh, and following up with a with treating the issue uh, in a calm manner, Uh, maybe even uh, gotten a uh, an an apology out of them, and the and then they could have moved on to to the more important matters that uh, are before them. Uh, So, in both cases, um, there were. This could have been an opportunity rather than a crisis. It could have been an opportunity for uh, diplomacy and to better understand each other. Exactly. And, you know, uh, this is what diplomats are supposed to do. (laughs) Their job is to uh, keep crises from happening, or if they do happen, uh, to calm the waters and try to find a way, uh, find an off ramp, so to speak. Uh, And that's and in that sense, it uh, it was an opportunity, uh, but instead it was treated as a as a crisis. Why do you think um, this is a question that's come
0: up on my show a lot? Do you think in some ways we've forgotten uh, the importance of the diplomatic toolbox when it comes to addressing international relations or U.S. relations with other countries? And how can we renew, you know, the importance of diplomacy within American foreign policy?
1: Well, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, it, is, it is the case that um, uh, in the U.S. State Department, and this goes back to Trump, uh, a lot of people with expertise, uh, not just on China, but on every other element of, uh, of foreign policy, uh, were e- either, either resigned or were pushed out. It, it's sort of reminiscent of the, uh, the last time that happened, uh, which was the McCarthy era purge of the State Department uh, because it was supposedly riddled with communist influence. Well, there's been um, something of the sort uh, in the Trump period and we're paying the price now because uh, I, I was just in Washington and uh, a, a number of people were talking about this and it was, it was uh, news to me but uh, the State Department um, is, is not in the best position it could be to conduct really serious diplomacy. Plus, um, when you have uh, people like Blinken and um, uh, others in the National Security uh, Council as well as the State Department and other branches that, uh, that do foreign policy uh, work, who are opposed to the idea of engaging adversaries, then uh, you have an additional problem that's not just a matter of personnel, it's a matter of, of uh, what the Chinese call a Cold War mindset. And, uh, and I think they're right. I think the Cold War mindset is, is really the dominant one in Washington uh, these days. And it's, it's true in the State Department and it's true in, certainly in, in the Congress. So your question about what to do about it uh, is is one that, um, well, you know, it it's it's structured. The, the problem is is deeply structured into our institutions. And
0: uh, I was going to say real quick, if I could, it sounds as yeah. if one of the problems we have in a lot of these institutions related to national security and and foreign policy is that. In a way, they're fossilizing um, or or ossifying in a way. Uh, They're they're stuck in this Cold War frame, even after the Cold War has ended. And in a way, it could lead to a new Cold War, which would be uh, extremely dangerous for all parties
1: involved. Well, yes. uh, I mean, there are some people who say we're already in Cold War II. uh, And then it's often pointed out in response that, well, uh, you know, uh, the fact is that even with all the... Uh, negativities in U.S.-China relations. Uh, U.S.-China trade is at an all-time high, and we're we're very much interdependent with one another uh, economically, and that's certainly true. So it's not quite the same as as it was with the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Well, I'm not too interested in whether to call it Cold War II just yet or or not. But the, the reality is that many elements of Cold War. Uh, Particularly, you know, in terms of uh, what co- what accounts for the ongoing, uh, endless uh, tensions in the relationship, uh, those elements are are still there, and um, and how to how to get rid of them is well, it's a it's a I mean, we look at how long the Cold War with the Russians went on, uh, and we can see that it it took the demise of the Soviet Union uh, itself uh, to finally bring something of a halt, although now it's turned out to be only a temporary one, because we're right back in, in a Cold War situation with Russia. Um, so it's, uh, it's a, a very, very difficult uh, problem of, of leadership uh, and education, training and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, what the way we're engaged right now, where we have dual, dual adversaries, China and Russia, um and in a proxy war with one and in very serious tensions with the other is something that we're, we're that we are get, making into a legacy for the next generation of analysts and uh, that doesn't bode well for uh, for the future of the planet for that matter do you think there's
0: any lessons we can learn uh from the cold war era because even though uh, obviously it, it was a, a conflict between the US and the Soviet Union there were moments where diplomacy came into play and, you know, essentially prevented uh, catastrophe even between these two uh,
1: superpowers that were at odds with each other. Well, one one lesson certainly has to do with communication. Uh, just uh, yesterday, I think it was, uh, Robert Zellick, who, you know, was a, was a high-level high uh, official in the uh, Obama and previous Democratic administrations. Uh, wrote a very good piece for the Washington Post uh, on the balloon incident and pointed out, I think quite correctly, that uh, what's lacking here is uh, transparency in when, and not just on military matters, but first and foremost on military matters when it comes to uh, US-China relations. And, um, and I think uh, in, the, in, the, in the Soviet Union period, We did have, you know, that was the period when a hotline was established, uh, when an agreement was reached under uh, Nixon uh, and Brezhnev for uh, a statement of principles governing the relationship. Uh, And in general, there was an effort um, to try to improve uh, transparency Uh, when it came to uh, military movements, especially in, in Central Europe. And so what uh, Robert Zellick is talking about in his uh, Washington Post article is that, and, and again, this he was saying this should be on the agenda when, uh, uh, when Biden, Blinken finally meets with Wang Yi, uh, that some better, um, more systematic way needs to be uh, established to have clear communications on uh, military on military matters, certainly including uh, military deployments, mil- uh, the use of military intelligence gathering and, and that sort of thing. But also he was suggesting, uh, very interestingly, that, that that same transparency should should apply or could apply on issues of climate change um, and other other kinds of contacts where we tend to be, uh, we in the Chinese uh, tend to be Uh, very um, sparse in what we, in the information that we exchange with one another. Uh, So here in in this era of um, uh, where technology provides opportunities that we never had before for instant communication uh, with, as far as the Chinese are concerned, we're certainly not using them.
0: So just a few more things here. In, In regards to looking at this balloon incident in terms of other incidents? You know, you mentioned that the U.S. and China have had plenty of incidents of far greater magnitude that were settled diplomatically. Could you talk about some of those incidents and maybe compare and contrast them to this Balloon Gate incident?
1: Yes. um, You know, the two that I particularly mentioned uh, were in 1999, in the Clinton years when um, the uh, the United States uh, mistakenly bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, in what was then Yugoslavia, uh, and then the there was uh, a further uh, further incident where uh, in, in the George W. Bush administration in 2001, where uh, the you know, the a U.S. Uh, jet and a Chinese jet almost uh, collided the U.S. jet was on a mission which of a kind that still takes place along the China coast surveillance mission. Uh, the Chinese are very upset about that and have mentioned it just recently uh, because of the balloon uh, uh, episode. And in, that, in, in both of those cases, uh, the Chinese lost lives. Several in the Belgrade bombing incident and then the Chinese pilot of the jet uh, that was over Hainan Island uh, was also killed. So, um, but in both of those cases, which could have become extremely uh, serious and led to a much bigger confrontation, uh, the US and China conducted effective diplomacy. Um, they got around the issue of formal apologies. Uh, Both sides recognized that they needed to have more effective communication with one another to uh, prevent uh, a shooting war uh, from occurring. Um, uh, Compensation was given for uh, loss of life and property, and the issue was settled. Uh, Meantime, uh, since those incidents, there have been any number of occasions, especially at sea, uh, in the in the uh, areas of um, the uh, Western Pacific, uh, and in particular around the very um, uh, the the um, South China Sea, where China has been very vigorously putting in military installations, there have been some pretty close calls. And uh, in those cases, again, uh, it shows that when it comes to incidents of that sort, military to military communication uh, is lacking. Uh, you know, the Chinese, in those, in those at sea uh, events, uh, Chinese captains will, will shout at American captains and and vice versa, and, uh, and and both will make claims that they belong where they are, and it's the other side's fault. Well, those kinds of things can easily explode into an exchange of fire. And then that makes it much harder to put the matter to rest. So again, it all goes back to having a more systematic and regularized means of dialogue uh, to prevent these things from happening in the first place. Uh, assume I'm, I'm going to assume that I
0: have listeners that may have a very critical view of China. So for instance, uh, I know there's people that are very upset with uh, the the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. Um, there's people that think China is being very aggressive uh, with Taiwan. Um, so people may be listening to this and saying, "Well, look at all these things China is doing. We can't let that stand." How do you respond to people who are concerned with, say, Chinese human rights abuses, or that believe that in order to deal with those uh, abuses, we have to take a harsher stance on uh, China that precludes more engagement? Like, what 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 would your Uh, critique of their thinking be?
1: Well, first of all, let me say I'm uh, right there with them on the human rights issues. And as a matter of fact, um, I go farther than a number of people. In my book, uh, I I talk uh, quite a bit about the situation in Xinjiang and call it a genocide, Uh, not just a large-scale repression, or a crime against humanity, or as some people call it, a cultural genocide. Uh, I call it, flat out, a genocide. Engaging China does not mean forfeiting the right to criticize and sanction uh, another country, in this case China, for blatant human rights violations. So uh, I'm, I'm right there. And it's, of course, the problem is not just with repression in uh, in Xinjiang; it's also the case in Hong Kong, where Hong Kong's uh, democratic experiment uh, has been pretty much brought to a halt. Uh, and of course, we have the Tibet situation, which uh, is long-lasting. And beyond that, uh, Xi Jinping has been uh, has been uh, engaged in a widespread repression of critics uh journalists, academic critics, and so forth. I, I think and even so, members
0: of, of the communist uh party in China have sort of been
1: uh, he, he's sort of consolidating
0: power now it seems like
1: yeah yeah and he's uh he has a situation of essentially lifetime tenure if he wants it uh and he's been abusing it and so uh you know that whole issue of, of human and civil civil liberties um is uh is something that uh you know that makes the Xi Jinping uh, leadership uh, particularly reprehensible, and at the se- but at the same time, uh, uh, we can't let that be the only element uh, of a China policy. On one hand, yes, we have to be vigorous critics of uh, of China's deprivation of human rights, so, uh, and by the way, uh, accept Chinese criticisms of our human rights problems, but at the same time, uh, recognize that um, in terms of China-U.S. relations, uh, the most the, the transcendent issues of our time uh, require that we build bridges and find common ground. And those central issues, as I've mentioned, are, to my mind, uh, the climate crisis, pandemics, and nuclear weapons. So we can't forfeit one for the other.
0: How would you uh, grade the pandemic response in regards to U.S.-China relations? Um, you know, I, I know there were a lot of people that uh, were trying to like blame China or or pushing conspiracy theories, and I, I think that's done a lot uh, to to sort of hurt. Uh, the possibility of better relations between the U.S. and China. Uh on the other hand, I, I do think a lot of people pushed back on the sort of anti China conspiracy theories around the pandemic. Uh what do you make of all that? Just out of curiosity.
1: Well I think uh the Chinese started out uh, handling the situation pretty well. Uh I'm not going to speculate on the origins of of the virus, uh you know, whether it was a zoonotic uh, transmission or or uh, a laboratory experiment gone wrong. Uh, maybe someday we'll find out the truth about that. But in any case, uh, you know the the dramatic uh, quarantining uh, of of citizens that occurred in China was very effective. But then the zero COVID uh, element that that she carried out was a was a dramatic failure. And the Chinese are now paying the price for it. Uh, you know, we'll probably never get uh, very good figures on how many people have actually died uh, as a result in China. But um, we do know that, by by the Chinese own admission, that eighty percent of the population has been infected at, at least. So it's been badly handled and, uh, and and aroused a great deal of resentment. And we saw the. Some people actually, especially younger people, um, uh, actually protesting against, uh, against the, uh, the new policy. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's certainly been a, a black mark on, on China's leadership that they chose to handle it that way. Of course, we have our own black mark to give out for Trump and his uh, absolutely disastrous and insensitive approach to, to, the, uh, to dealing with, the, uh, with COVID-19. Um, so nobody, uh, and, and the, you know, over 1 million people who have died in, in the United States as a result. So there's, um, there's, there's no one who can, um, you know, there are bad, there are dirty hands everywhere on, on this, uh, on this issue, but, um, it has, it has certainly, uh, impacted U S China relations. It's just another, another negative. Uh, It's particularly unfortunate now that uh, the Chinese will not accept our offer of vaccine assistance because uh, it's very clear that uh, the uh, Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are much more effective than the Chinese made vaccines.
0: Do do you Uh, think the incident, out of curiosity, do you think the incident uh, involving Trump calling it, you know, the China virus and, and certain, I mean, I know you said you don't want to get into the what the origins were, but I, I remember there were some voices pushing conspiracy theories, I would say, that uh, this was like a biological weapon created by the Chinese. I mean, it's one thing to say it could have been a lab accident, but the people pushing, you know, oh, this was all deliberate or calling it the China virus, I think those
1: approaches actually have done a lot of harm. Oh, I agree. No question about it. Yeah, there's th- those conspiracy theories like <laughs> – like all the conspiracy theories we, we typically hear around uh, in the united states uh, are just uh, uh, absurd and yet they get picked up in the chinese press uh and magnified and that becomes part of the american view of china and it certainly hurts uh the relationship uh and of course uh as you said the the way that the Chi- that that the um, the outbreak in China was depicted during the Trump years, um, making it uh, seem that it was a uh, you know part that that it was the Wuhan virus or or the panda virus or whatever, uh, using terms like that uh, only only made a bad situation worse. So uh, it it's just another piece in the puzzle, and um, and there's just it. On our side, it's very hard to stop. And and what it did do also, in response, was lead the Chinese to create their own in- conspiracy theories, you know, arguing that that uh, actually the virus originated in American military laboratories. Right, right.
0: That it was. Uh, I, I think the claim was that it was like hybrid warfare by the U.S.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's and you know, it's it's the same thing that's happening with the balloon uh, situation, where now that. You know, once it was, once we declared that it was a, a spy spy uh, weapon, uh, the Chinese responded that well. Not only uh, have the have the Americans sent spy balloons over us, uh, but they continue to um, to uh, spy with with aircraft and satellites along uh, along our borders as well as inside. And so um, you know that sort of thing only arouses populations uh, to a hateful situation, and uh, and that's and now with you know with thanks to social media, uh, the message that all that negativity gets spread very rapidly, and becomes the the, um, the 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 narrative, the official narrative on both sides. We've had to grapple a lot lately in this country with um,
0: the legacy of racism. And I think, uh, you know, there was an era in this history that we remember as the yellow peril. You know, you you can read old novels like the Fu Manchu novels, and you can see, wow, there's this real anti-Chinese, racist, xenophobic sentiment that exists in this country. How much of that do you think uh, sort of lingered on throughout the decades, and maybe is still with us in some ways? How does racism affect our ability to to again engage, engage with china
1: well i think you're right R- recall that um the incidents in our streets against uh people presumed to be chinese uh and um you know it it we we saw that uh, there are there are people <laughs> it, our fellow americans who um, have taken uh, this uh, anti-China official attitude to the point of actually physically attacking um, Asian Americans, uh, and it's also, but but it's not just that. It's it's. I think that same racism also ca- came into play with the uh, Justice Department, uh, where a so-called China initiative. That's a very strange way of putting it, but the China initiative was designed uh, by the Justice Department and the FBI to crack down on um, Chinese researchers in in the United States, who were presumably um, taking advantage of their situations in laboratories, university laboratories, to uh, acquire data to be sent back to China. And it turned out that uh, the China Initiative was really um, a racial profiling, of people of Chinese descent in in our university laboratories who were entirely innocent. And out of of all that uh, effort, there was only one conviction, and it was of a a Caucasian Harvard uh, scientist, not not of someone of Chinese descent. But as many in Congress uh, who were critical of the China Initiative said, this really was a, a racially motivated effort, uh, which had, has had very, uh, very serious consequences because a number of these very prominent uh, visiting Chinese, who were among those who were pressured by the, by the uh, Justice Department, uh, decided to give up on, uh, on, on America for doing research and returned to China. And so we lost a lot of talent Uh, as a result of that China initiative. Yeah, and I was just going to add to that. One of the concerns I think people
0: should be thinking about as tensions between China and the U.S. escalate is, I mean, we have a lot of Chinese Americans, uh, some of whom work in in the federal government, who, you know, I I was recently talking to um, Patrick G. Eddington, the Cato Institute on issues related to uh, civil liberties, and he was telling me, you know, there's federal employees that are treated uh, with suspicion uh, because they're Chinese American. And I'm sure that happens uh, in a number of different uh, institutions in American society. And that could get much worse as these tensions rise, where you're, you're seeing people that are Chinese Americans be targeted. Well, just as Muslim Americans uh,
1: have been targeted. Yeah, uh, there's there's no question that that's happening uh, across the board. Um, and... Uh, I think that was pretty much encouraged in the Trump years, but even though it's discouraged now, uh, it's there's no question that it takes place, and um, and so especially for Chinese who are in science, who are in doing scientific research of any kind, uh, it's it has become uh, a serious problem, and that's why. Um, a number of university presidents, uh, I'm thinking in particular of Stanford, taking the lead on this, were very, uh, very good at denouncing that China initiative that I mentioned, because uh, because it was racial profiling, and because it was putting, uh, it it was casting a, a light on uh, people of Chinese uh, descent who were just doing uh, honest and very and very important research but who were being uh, pushed to the point where uh, where they had to think about uh, leaving the country.
0: In regards to U.S.-China relations, what do you think the U.S. misunderstands about China? Or what are the misperceptions the U.S. has about China? And what are the misperceptions that China may have about the U.S.? Mm.
1: Ah uh, well, <laughs> that is a, that is a big question. Um, that could be a whole hour in and of itself. <laughs> oh, uh, or 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 more. Um, <laughs> uh, I think the maybe I could put it this way. Um, I, I was I was just uh, in Washington to give some talks on my on my book, and had the occasion to. Um, to speak to audiences that included quite a number of young Chinese um, scholars, uh, graduate students primarily, and uh, and their professors, their American professors, and the the message that I got loud and clear, but certainly uh, it's a familiar one to me. It's just sad that it keeps that that the message is is still so prominent. Is uh, how very limited American understanding of China is, even even at the professional level, which, which I think would include uh, a lot of people who are U.S. officials. That is to say, uh, the unwillingness to uh, go deep into uh, another country's, in this case, China's history and culture, uh, to learn something of the language. Uh, you know, uh, because out of all that comes a whole different way of looking at the world, you know looking at it through Chinese eyes, which doesn't mean agreeing with what you see, uh, but it does mean being able to have a deeper understanding of, 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 of any particular situation. And so um, you know the Chinese have uh, three over 300,000, Students and researchers in the United States right now, 300,000, by far the leading uh, international group. Uh, how many Americans are in China? Uh, well, I don't know, but it's uh, it's it's a handful really compared compared to the number of Chinese here. And so you can imagine that uh, the opportunities for misperceptions on our side are going to be even greater than they are on the on the other side. Uh, and, and what we should be doing, you know, is the opposite of what we are doing. And that is uh, encouraging more, not fewer Chinese to come here. You know, right now, uh, the visa situation is uh, with, with Chinese coming into the United States uh, is, is not uh, very, very advantageous because um, people who are uh, said to have some connection and you can imagine what, how that's interpreted, but some connection to the Chinese Communist Party or the Chinese military are still barred from applying for a visa. And, um, and so uh, we get far fewer people than we otherwise might. Uh, and now that China is, is uh, starting to reopen uh, as it gets past the COVID situation, um, you know, we should have uh, a greater opportunity to go back there, but I, I have a hunch that not many are going to take advantage of that. So, so the the issue of how how to perceive China as something more than a, a draconian state, where um, where everybody is who who says anything that's off off color is going to be locked up. Uh, and try to see that China is a very, you know, has become a quite quite diverse society. And it really there is no one China profile. You know, there's there's uh, I, I always like to say in in talking about China that you know there's there's a coastal China and there's interior China. There's ethnic minority China and there's ethnic majority China. Uh, and um, and you know you go on and on in that vein. There are many Chinas.
0: Yeah, I was going to say it's it stands in stark contrast what you're saying. It stands in stark contrast to I think uh, a common American view that I I think is pretty xenophobic that almost treats China as if they're like a Borg society, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I do think I do think that China probably has different cultural mores around the the place of the individual society. There may be a greater emphasis on cooperation uh, or collectivism in some ways, but there's also this misperception I think people have where they treat China as just some Borg entity and it's uh very damaging in my view.
1: Well it is and uh, it it lends itself to stereotyping and demonizing, which were hallmarks of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Uh, and you know China is um, is so vast and so uh, multi-part. That uh, you can't—you you have to be very careful about uh, about uh, treating uh, China or the Chinese uh, in, in a in a monolithic way. Uh, it's a very diverse uh, country. There are many. There are just as many different lifestyles and ways of thinking as there are here. Truly, and even though um, it's a it's a society that is very much. Uh, under the repression of of a party state uh, leadership, uh, that doesn't mean that when you actually go there and talk to people, you don't get uh, very fresh and frank uh, points of view. So, um, but you know, in order to to understand that, uh, you know, you can't just hear about it, you have to actually live it. You have to go there and that's not easy. And besides, you know, Americans are not we're well known for not being terribly keen on getting deep into another society's uh, culture because we think that they have more to learn from us than we could ever possibly learn from them. So, since you said looking at the world through uh, maybe
0: Chinese eyes, what do you think the biggest, I don't even want to use the term differences, but uh, maybe just, just the way that China looks at uh Culture or the individual in society. How does it maybe differ a little bit from maybe um, uh, an American view on some things?
1: Well, certainly, when it comes to the whole issue of uh, individualism, uh, that's really, I think, probably the most uh, the most significant thing. Chinese who come from China to to the United States uh, are certainly attracted to. The individual freedom that that exists here, uh, they really they really do find that, and, and that's and especially those Chinese I was talking about a moment ago who are in the scientific community, you know they appreciate academic freedom, and re- and that includes research freedom, and that's why they came here, and and that's why they were so shocked to find themselves suddenly under suspicion. Uh, so, and I think in general. Uh, on the one hand, they uh, visit, Chinese visitors will will appreciate the extraordinary opportunities for self expression uh, that we have, and for freedom of movement, and and all that. But on the other hand, they see where that can can um, can go too far. Uh, you mean? Can, would
0: an example of that maybe be like the mask situation? Because I know in I've been in contact with people from Eastern cultures that would say, I never had a problem wearing a mask um, because, you know, Mm. it's just I don't I I don't want other people getting sick. Whereas there were arguments about that in the U.S. Um, Is that a possible uh, difference that maybe they would see? Yeah,
1: that 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 would certainly be one among among many. Uh, But I think uh, even more so, you know, uh, think about the freedom to uh, to have a gun. Uh, and to to use it, uh, the freedom to uh, to be fighting with other with other people, uh, you know, online, let's say, uh, or or road rage, um, you know, all, all the all the ways in which in which we're you know that we are ourselves familiar with, in which in which uh, this uh, individual freedom gets gets out of hand, and and causes you know terrible problems. I mean, the freedom. To say whatever you want in whatever way you want uh, online or to uh, or in other social media, Um, you know, those things the Chinese really take get get, um, surprised and shocked about. Uh, So um, they, you know, they understand quite well the contradictions of American society. And, uh, and they, and, and thus, Find uh, wind up being both attracted and repulsed by what they see.
0: Last question here, in terms of engaging China, and maybe since we were talking about cultural differences, bridging cultural differences, uh, what's your hope for the future? And what do you hope that listeners get out of this conversation when it comes to engaging with China?
1: Well, I think the first thing that I hope people uh, get out of it is that uh, they see China not in terms of a looming uh, threat but rather as a country which is primarily concerned about internal security, uh, which has both positive and negative uh, dimensions to be sure, uh, and is not concerned about uh, attacking Taiwan or about gearing up for a major war with the United States. Uh, this, China is not the old Soviet Union Neither is it the current Russia. Uh, it is an enormous country which uh, certainly uh, demands its rightful place in the world as a great power. and uh, and, uh, and efforts to block China's rise are go- inevitably going to be unsuccessful and in turn and and in fact will breed suspicion and hostility. So my primary concern is that, uh, folks take away that that there are very important opportunities for mutual advantage and international security by creating as many bridges as possible to China and from them from them uh, to us. Well,
0: Mel Gertov, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, I'm assuming my listeners can pick up your book, Engaging. China uh, at their uh, favorite independent bookseller or online. Uh, anything yes. else uh, that I missed?
1: <laughs> no, uh, uh, great questions. And um, it's been enjoyable. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax
0: Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mel Gertov. And you'll check out his book, Engaging China, Rebuilding Sino-American Relations. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with JJ Michaels.
1: The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit is If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you, know, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why...